Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here, and you are listening to the Stimulus Podcast, where we break down ideas, strategies, and tactics to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up and muscle through it. No, think differently. Who am I? For those of you new to the show, I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and now as a full-time ICF certified coach. I help docs work through burnout, you know, when you feel it, overwhelm, as in there's too much on my plate. I'm not even sure where to begin to find breathing room. Behavioral challenges, as in I do this thing that isn't who I want to be and it's causing problems. Leadership. I've spent my career seeing patients, and now I'm in a leadership position, or want to be. I wasn't trained for this. How do I do it well? If you hear any of that and think, yeah, you know what? There are some things I'd like to work on. Give us a shout through our website, roborman.com, and set up a free coaching discovery session. Yep, it is free to get clarity on your challenges, dig into what success would look like, and see if coaching is something you might want to pursue. Learn more at roborman.com. On today's show, the false assumption of admitting errors. We all know that mistakes are common in medicine, right? There was that Institute of Medicine report that came out years ago saying, oh my God, there's over 100,000 mistakes a year, I, probably an underestimate. And they can happen anywhere, the hospital, the clinic, the OR, the emergency department, anywhere. And the response is often to pretend that the mistake never happened. And then, okay, it's discovered what happens. Well, business as usual is usually to deny and defend. And then there's a prolonged process of resolution where, I mean, especially if you've been through it, you know, there's multiple victims here. There's the patient, there's the clinician, and it is a profoundly adversarial process. And that, in addition to just tremendous stress for all parties, also leads to a lost opportunity to learn from mistakes. And a lot of how this is approached comes under the guise of risk management. But maybe we need to reframe these events from managing risk to managing patients. And to that point, our guest for this episode is Dr. Peter Smolowitz. Peter is author of one of the seminal articles on a rational and thoughtful approach to medical errors. And we will have a link to that in the show notes. I'm not even going to say the title because, you know what, let's be real. You are probably driving or you're on the Stairmaster or bench pressing a stack of weights, you're spearfishing, gardening, I don't know. You're not going to remember the title anyway. So link in the show notes. Peter Smolowitz is also Chief Medical Officer, Milford Regional Medical Center in Milford, Massachusetts, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, University of Massachusetts Medical School. And I have known Peter for many years. And I'll say this, I learned something new from him every time we chat, and this conversation was no different. So here we go, Peter Smolowitz and the false assumption of admitting errors. So Peter, we've got this status quo where an adverse event happens. We hold our breath. Maybe there's a claim filed and then a deposition and then a trial. And it's kind of this horrible process for everybody. And it feels wrong on many ways. But from your perspective, what's actually wrong with this status quo? Rob, it's almost hard to know where to begin with this one. The status quo is just miserable all around. If you look at the patient-provider relationship, 
it's clear that the this risk management strategy and this current liability system we have is a huge impediment to the patient-provider relationship and has been even stated by the Institute of Medicine as being the number one impediment to patient safety. So on the patient level, it's awful. From what patients see from the system, patients, when something bad does happen to them and they deserve compensation, they receive about 30 cents on the dollar because the rest goes to administrative waste and to the the lawyers within the process. For the providers, could there be a worse system? We spend a lot of our careers practicing to avoid lawsuits and worrying about the next lawsuit, even though the chance of it happening is still pretty low. When lawsuits do happen, they lead to significant impacts on the providers themselves, depression and even suicide, substance abuse, burnout, and plenty of people leaving the industry. And for the whole system itself, I mean, it's it's a huge cost. You can debate the numbers behind defensive medicine, but there's no doubt that we, to some degree, all practice defensively because nobody wants to end up with an adverse event that results in a lawsuit. You know, in Massachusetts, there was a study a couple of years ago that said we spent about 1.4 billion with a B billion dollars a year in in medicine on defensive medicine. So it's a huge impact to healthcare costs. And that's really just scratching the surface of what's wrong with this current system. The bottom line for it, in my opinion, though, is it doesn't benefit the patient and their family who oftentimes never receives an answer when a major adverse event happens. And it certainly doesn't benefit the providers. So you've written about this, you lecture on this. And as I understand it, this all started from an event that happened when you were a freshly minted attending. I appreciate the chance to talk about this. It's probably one of the worst experiences that any physician could ever have. And I, I haven't really talked about it before on a large scale. Yeah, maybe on some of the small lectures I give about this, but this will be the first time that I really talk about it on a wide level. And I hope that it's instructive to people and also give some sense of why I got interested in this and also how to make systems better at people's own hospitals so that nobody has to experience at least the aftermath of an event like this. I was done with residency for about three months when this occurred, and I'd come into work a night shift. And I think the first patient that I saw was a 24-year-old who presented with back pain, I think like thoracic back pain kind of after lifting boxes all day. I mean, obviously we're telling the story because it's something more than musculoskeletal back pain, but how many 24-year-olds lifting boxes have something other than back pain when they present to the ED? But something about the case bothered me a little bit more than it normally would have. So we did some lab work on him. We even ended up doing an MRI because I knew there was some history of substance use, namely cocaine, I think, in his story, but not necessarily intravenous drug use. The MRI was done and read as normal at some point after midnight, continued to sort of work on controlling his pain. And I think around three or four in the morning, I was sitting at my desk doing some charting. And all of a sudden, I heard this thud on the ground maybe 10 feet to my right. And I turned towards, and that, that was his room, although I didn't recognize that it was this patient on the ground all of a sudden, but he had collapsed and went into PA arrest. So during the resuscitation, uh, we eventually ended up needle decompressing both sides of the chest. And when the senior resident decompressed the right side, blood basically came spurting out from it. Unfortunately, it was only at that point that sort of the diagnosis became clear to me. And I asked the junior resident to go back to radiology and have them look at the aorta on MRI. And of course, when they returned a minute later, they said, yeah, they said something's really wrong with the aorta, which they hadn't seen on the initial review. He unfortunately died. I hope nobody ever has to experience a case where they 
have a young person die on them, but it's going to happen to many of us. It's hard to explain the feelings that I had in the process I went through afterwards, although I'll do my best to do so. I felt horrible and had zero confidence in myself after this, thinking, how could I possibly miss such a serious diagnosis, even though it was an odd and unusual presentation in a young person? Made me not want to show up for shifts afterwards, although I can continue to plug away. In the short aftermath of this, I almost quit practicing medicine probably three or four times over the next year or two. The response that I got from the hospital was left a lot to be desired. I mean, nobody wanted to really talk to me about it. Nobody probably felt they could talk to me about it. The risk management folks basically told me, do not speak to a single soul about this, except for here's the number for a psychiatrist to speak to. And I just felt completely, completely alone. 15 years later, I'm recovered from this and know that I am a good clinician and know that, I mean, who knows whether I could have or should have made that diagnosis, but that's really not the point at this time. The point is, is that a patient had a really bad outcome. I, the provider, was totally alone, left to figure it out on my, by myself and told not to speak to a single soul. And I can't even imagine from the patient's family's side what they experienced because they couldn't talk to anybody about what had happened. And even though the case settled uh, four or five years later, I don't know that they ever truly got answers. And they probably have no idea how I feel about it, how badly I feel. Maybe they don't care. But I feel like the chance for us to talk to each other, for me to apologize for such a horrible thing happening to their family member was taken away from us. No provider should ever feel like this and no family should ever feel like this in the aftermath of adverse events. We're human beings. We're going to make mistakes and we practice in imperfect systems where bad things are going to happen to people despite our best attempts. And this current practice of pushing everything under the rug and pretending that things don't, bad things don't happen is just absurd. You know, at some point in time, I decided that rather than sulk over this and be miserable, that I needed to make things better for people. As you describe the story and the tearing emotion bleeds out, you talk about the victim, the patient, the first victim, but you are the second victim. I mean, there's even a name for this, the second victim syndrome, which is just compounded by this forced and I'd say institutionalized isolation that we're almost obliged to enter when something like this happens. Yeah. I don't know that I could say it any better than what you already just said is it is institutionalized and it shouldn't be, and it doesn't have to be. We have made some major changes to how we manage this at our own institution. And it really started with work initially done out of the VA in Lexington, Kentucky, but really made popular, I guess I would say, by a guy by the name of Rick Boothman at the University of Michigan, who developed these communication apology resolution programs. There's a number of different names for them, but that bring the provider's out of the shadows, encourage them to talk about it, encourage supporting the providers, and also encouraging sort of a transparent process with the patients and families. There's no wonder that we spend so much time worrying about lawsuits and that we have, in my mind, some of the burnout related to emergency medicine also related to this stress that we feel about the uncertainty of decision-making and making mistakes and what happens in the aftermath of that, and that we have nobody to talk to when it occurs. One of the things here that we're talking about is not being able to talk about it first and foremost to the patient. And as I was preparing for this conversation, I came across an article, this is in the Tennessee Student Legal Journal Forum, titled, 
I'm sorry, I'm scared of litigation, evaluating the effectiveness of apology laws, where it has this quote, although physicians may feel the need to apologize after an adverse medical event, physicians' gut instincts to apologize are often hampered by the fear that their statements will be used against them in court. This fear is further solidified when their attorneys advise them to be careful not to admit fault or liability. This seemingly well-thought-out strategy to remain silent actually creates an unexpected paradox. Refusing to apologize can precipitate litigation to an even greater extent. Consequently, the lack of an apology can dilute the doctor-patient relationship, hinder patient safety, and increase litigation. So there's these two sides of the coin One is that, yeah, we're told not to apologize. We have this gut instinct not to apologize, but also not apologizing has all of these bad effects on what happens downstream with that patient, also negative downstream effects with us. So what's the next step? There's a couple of things here that I would talk about. First is to distinguish between communication and apology. It is the responsibility of the provider and of the hospital backing that provider to continue to communicate with patients in the aftermath of adverse events. And that's sort of a simple statement that we should put through. The apology is a bit more nuanced. I want to make it clear that an apology is not necessarily an admission of fault. And apologies can be different at different stages in reviewing these events afterwards. So for example, if a bad thing happens to a patient that you're caring for, but you don't know exactly what happened, and I would actually say you don't know exactly what happened until a careful root cause analysis is done, We shouldn't go up to the patient and just say, hey, I totally screwed up. It's totally my fault. I could have done a lot better. This is crazy. Now come and blame me for it. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's not what we're saying people should be saying. But at the time where something bad happens, it would be a totally appropriate time for an apology like, it is so horrible that this bad event happened to you or happened to your family member. We are devastated that this occurred. And then the next thing should be, We are going to continue taking care of your loved one or continue taking care of you, the patient, and our hospital is going to be carefully reviewing what just happened, and we're going to get back to you with the results of what we find. So that's how an apology and then communication should be done. The last piece to this is apologies. Well, I'm not a lawyer, of course, but I have spent enough time with lawyers over this process to understand that lawyers actually think that apologies are beneficial to the physician. As long as you're not saying something crazy within the apology, but if you apologize for something bad happening, that is protective in the court of law because at least what lawyers tell me is that it makes physicians look like human beings in the courtroom, which is something that's favorable to the defense side of things. You had mentioned the program that started at the VA hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, and then the University of Michigan really took it on. The care program. You've been talking about some of that here and and how this should look, but what specifically did they do with this care? They made it an institutional process. So what did they do? What did it look like? And then what was the result after they did this? Because like, oh, you know, this is all well and good to have this sort of thing, but maybe it actually makes things worse when you look at the data. And I think what you said at the beginning of that sentence, which is that they institutionalized this process. So while the names have changed over time, let's just break it down into the three pieces. So there's communication, there's apology, and there's resolution. Communication simply means that there should be 
early and ongoing communication in the aftermath of an adverse event. Plain and simple. An apology should be then apologizing for mistakes when they happen, and then resolution should be making sure that patients receive just and timely compensation when bad things occur that are directly attributable to lack of following the standard of care, but on the flip side, that it's a robust defense of the hospital, the provider, and the system when it's not attributable to negligence or the lack of standard of care, and robust support of providers when bad things happen but are outside of anybody else's control. Uh, The University of Michigan was able to more easily do this because they have a captive insurer, meaning that their insurer is sort of built in with their hospital and many don't, which makes it a little bit harder logistically for people to do it. But even if it is an external insurer, institutionalizing this kind of process at the hospital is the only way to really make it work because you have to tie the communication, the apology piece to a true, just and timely resolution. So that resolution may be compensation. Involved in this whole thing with the University of Michigan, there is actually a monetary transfer to the patient or their family if there is fault or an error on the hospital or the physician. Yeah, although the stipulation to that is that's assuming that the patient actually wants compensation. Many lawsuits actually go ahead because patients just want answers and they feel like the only way for them to get answers is to file a suit. So there are plenty of cases in this care process where through discussing these cases with families, they are happy at just having answers and having the truth and may or may not even want financial compensation. Now, sometimes the right thing to do is to provide financial compensation and do that with them having representation at their side, but it doesn't necessarily mean there will always be compensation. The truth is so much more powerful. I want to take a break for a moment and introduce you to our Patreon page. We've mentioned this on a few shows. It's pretty new, but it is most certainly up and running. And our Patreon page is where you can support the production of this show because Stimulus is produced by two people, produced by me and my better half, definitely better half, Melissa. We find the guests, conduct the interviews, edit the audio, craft detailed show notes. We've got the web hosting, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of, lot of steps go into making this pod. And the expense to do it all is not insignificant. If you find value in this show, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our Patreon page. And a hearty thank you to all of those who have already become Patreons. That is just pretty freaking awesome. We'll have a link to our Patreon page in the show notes, both on your podcatcher and on the website. Now, back to the show. So how does it look when this happens? Is it just the doc says, oh yeah, okay, I see this uh, I see this thing went wrong. I'm gonna go talk to this family. Or is it, okay, I need to contact the Office of Communication Apology and Resolution and they're going to come with me and I'll have the representative there. And this is now a formal process, which can kind of seem like heavy handed, like, whoa, what, what's, what's, what's coming at me? So what does that actually look like on the granular level? Really, the only responsibility for the provider is to make sure that we're communicating and providing that quote-unquote apology in the short term. And when there has been a significant adverse event, especially one where they're unsure if the standard of care was met, to then refer that to whoever in your institution would be the right contact. The first thing I would say is you have to make sure that your institution is going to be supportive of this. Some people, unfortunately, may be in hospitals where they're still stuck in this 
old way of doing business. And that's not the time where I think people are going to feel supported. But hopefully most hospitals have moved along. And even in small hospitals, like the community hospital where I'm the chair of the ED, we have one patient relations slash risk management person. And I have a very good relationship with her. So if anything that ever happened to one of my patients and when anything happens to one of my providers happens, I'm one of the first that should be aware. And then I will directly communicate with this patient relations person to make sure that ongoing communication happens, that a root cause analysis happens, that we work closely to set up family meetings as desired with the patient and family, and that we keep the provider in the loop on this and make sure that they are involved and approving of this because the provider has to be okay with it and not feel that we're taking the process out of their hands. Okay. So let me bring up a hypothetical situation like how this would look. So you've got patients in rooms next to each other. They're both last name Johnson. One of them has an ectopic pregnancy and the doc talks to OBGYN and going to do methotrexate. Great. In the next room, patient Johnson has a viable pregnancy. She's there with hyperemesis and she gets a methotrexate. The other patient gets some antiemetic. That's a bad error. It's a mistake. There could be a really undesirable outcome. For both, you've got the patient with the ectopic who didn't get her treatment. You've got the patient with the viable pregnancy who just got methotrexate. So what would actually happen in the ED when that was realized or or as the process went on? Yeah, thanks for picking probably one of the worst <laughs> scenarios that could happen. <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, that's challenging. And in some ways, that's going to be simple. I mean, the the first thing is, do we know that the wrong patient received the methotrexate? And if we know that for sure, the provider should be saying, you were given this medication. We don't know what the reason is for this yet. You know, and I mean, you could start talking about that. You don't know what the outcome is going to be of it yet, but that we're going to, again, continue to be investigating what happened. We will continue to support you. And in this case, it's going to need to be escalated further, much more quickly. So in this case, if I were the provider, I'd be reaching out to my ED chair right away. I'd be having them coordinate with OBGYN and with like the chief medical officer of the hospital, for example, and probably with, I hate to use the word risk manager, but that's really the only term we still have because they're going to need to be actively involved early in communicating to the patient what the likely possibilities would be and how they're going to continue to provide care and support during this. And that might be having the OBGYN coming directly to the bedside to communicate probably after a discussion together with the provider and the chief medical officer of how they're going to handle this. The rule of thumb for me is the more severe that a case is, the more that the institution needs to pull together quickly to discuss what's going to be said, how it's going to be said, and who's going to say it. And then there's got to be a point person who's going to follow along with this patient and be that's continually right. communicating. It can't be you. I mean, that's the basic idea of this program. And if you don't have that support in your hospital, you better tell somebody to get that emotion because- your hospital's way behind if they don't have at least that infrastructure to provide ongoing support to patients when bad things happen. We want to talk about delivering that news. You know, we've talked about delivering bad news on the show before, and there's kind of good and not as good ways to do it, you might say. And with this, I wonder if you have coached or talked with your clinicians on how to do this in effective, or maybe here's a less effective way. And I was talking about the uh, the article from the Law Journal before, and it had this interesting explanation on the core 
of an apology, that the explanation should be used to demystify the offenses, not excuse the offenses. So I see that as like, okay, I take ownership of what happened. I am explaining clearly what happened, but there's not an excuse or a shirking of responsibility. You really just want to make sure that the facts are delivered, and that means the facts as you know them, and that means not going above and beyond what you think you can explain, and certainly not blaming yourself or anybody else. It's got to be honest. It's got to be transparent. It's got to be delivered in a way that makes the patient feel supported. It is almost impossible to train every provider on how to apologize effectively. So what we've done is put in place something called just-in-time coaching, so that when something bad happens, there's, there's even a pager number for it, three help at our hospital, where you can reach out to somebody who has had years and years of training in this to be able to coach you in what to say, what not to say, and whether you should be the right one to say it, or whether it's time to reach out to somebody who may know more effectively how to say things. So the University of Michigan really pioneered this. I mean, they, they didn't start it, but they took it to heart, made it an institutional process. What happened after they started using this care or communication apology resolution program? They saw a dramatic reduction in number of claims, number of lawsuits, and overall cost related to the lawsuits. They saw the biggest reduction in some of the biggest dollar value cases through the way they manage this. So that's good. And I think that information has been replicated or those results have been replicated at some of the other institutions that have really been doing this institutionally, meaning Stanford and their Pearl program and then University of Illinois. But almost more importantly is that along with this, there was a dramatic increase in the number of incident reports. That's key right there. Yeah, totally. Lawsuits actually didn't disappear. They're still there, but they decreased by at least half after this program happened. Yeah, there's no way that we're ever going to get rid of all the lawsuits, but it's clear that their results, at least early on, demonstrated that there would be a substantial reduction in suits. But no matter how well you do the process, there are some patients that are going to still go want to go on and file a suit. And that's okay. I mean, that's their prerogative, but at least they've we've made every attempt to try to reduce the likelihood of that happening. But an important piece is that if patients do receive financial compensation through the care program, they have to sign a waiver where they can't go on and file a suit after that. When we talk about apologies, there's, you know, we were talking about it before that there's kind of this, this paradox, but there's also a reluctance to engage in that process. You think, oh, okay, there's going to be this whole communication, apology, resolution. You know, people are going to have information. But if I start down this road, then I'm actually making myself vulnerable to a suit. But on that, there are apology laws in many states, but they're not all the same. Some are partial apology laws, so they protect you if you just apologize. You know, it's like, oh, I'm so sorry for what you're going through, or you know, you have all of my sympathy. And then there are, I guess you would call full apology laws, where when you essentially admit fault or disclose all of this information you have protection. How do those actually pan out? Your comment had almost two parts to it. So to go back to the first piece of it was providers can feel vulnerable and not want to apologize or say anything. And I can completely understand that. 
I guess I would say that I'm hopeful that bringing this out of the shadows will make providers feel more supported and in a position where they want to be open and transparent about these things, knowing the positive benefits for them, the patient, and the system. I just want providers to feel first that this is the right thing to do. And to do so, just put yourself in the situation of a patient or a family when something bad happens. Wouldn't you kind of want to know what happened? Wouldn't you want the hospital and the provider to be as open and transparent about what occurred? And I think looking at it through that framework makes us realize this this really is the right way to do it. On the apology front, I frankly don't care whether there's an apology legislation in place in any state. They're almost useless. They're there kind of to say, hey, we as a legislature are in favor of this process and promoting this process, but they don't really provide much protection. And as I mentioned before, most defense attorneys will state pretty clearly that apologies are beneficial to the physician. So there, we don't really need this legislation in place. And I'm glad it happens in states as a formal proof of support for these programs, but they're kind of excess. So you've got Michigan and Illinois and Stanford, and they've got set programs. It's institutionalized. Great. Maybe you've got a hospital that's starting a program. Okay, we're kind of learning how to do this. But let's take most listeners who have nothing to say, well, maybe you know, I would want to talk with someone about getting this started. Great. We'll have some resources in the show notes for that. But they think, I want to change how I approach this. I want to change this on just one tiny level on how I think, on how I communicate with patients. Granted, I don't have the system to back me up. It's I'm just kind of going out there in the wind. How would you advise them to approach a patient or approach a situation when there has been an error? I think that I struggle with that question because providers do need to be in a system that supports them. At the same time, providing very simple explanations to patients when bad things happen is the very beginning of what we can do as providers. So I guess I would put it into two steps, which is no matter how good your supporting infrastructure is, make sure that when something bad happens, you're discussing with the patient that something occurred that should not have and that you're going to be continuing to care for them and that you'll make sure the hospital reviews it. Every hospital should have some sort of process for reviewing adverse events. And the second piece was you don't need a formalized process in order to reach out to your ED chief or your ED chair and make sure they're coordinating with whatever patient relations infrastructure you have in the hospital. And if they don't do their job after that, that's that's their problem. And they're going to need to fix that. And we as providers have to encourage, I would say that even more vociferously and say, we need to demand that our hospitals have these kind of infrastructure in place to make sure that we don't feel alone when these things happen. And what's been advised to me whenever I've been in meetings about this, and I have worked in many states, and this is, has not wavered based on location, but the message from your med mal carrier is that when there's an adverse event, you know, you can you can do these things or whatever or whatever set up in your institution, but to also contact them to open a file and also they have you write a narrative on what happened when it's fresh in your mind. Mm. Because regardless of how all this goes, it could still go to trial. It's gonna be unpleasant you are going to have a poor memory years down the road 
of the micro details. And this narrative is what you saw, smell, what was going on. It's, you know, just in your file. I don't think it's discoverable by the plaintiff side, but it's for you to recall years down the road what exactly you thought, said, and did. I don't think I could argue with that. I actually don't know the the legal protections or ramifications of something like that or whether it's discoverable. But reaching out to your malpractice insurer or malpractice carrier shortly afterwards is definitely something that we advise people to do along with discussing within the hospital. And we sort of make that a step that's embedded within the process that our patient relations person is in constant contact with our malpractice carrier so that whenever these things happen, it's almost like an automatic thing. Sure, the provider's encouraged to do so as well, but it's kind of a duplicative step at that case. And I'm not really sure what the malpractice carriers do with that information afterwards. Sometimes they just sit on it. So it's really more important that the institution that you work with or work in is doing more active work, as we've talked about, to try to communicate with patients and not sort of sit on things and wait for them to surface three or four years later. You and a group of other authors did a a study on this, looking at the barriers to implementation and strategies for implementation. What did you guys find? The barriers to these things are as you would expect. Providers are very wary of it. They feel vulnerable. The hospitals are worried that they're going to be paying a lot of money because there's going to be increase in lawsuits. The establishment, meaning the plaintiff's attorneys and the defense attorneys to some degree are very much against this. Although we found that, I mean, the defense attorneys are the ones that have the biggest thing to be worried about just from a numbers game because they're not involved as much. But even when there's discussion about compensation, the plaintiff's attorneys are involved. But even with that sort of semantics, we've found that in Massachusetts, just engaging the bar was really useful and helpful in moving this along because many of them actually want to do the right thing as well. Believe it or not. (laughs) Well, Peter... We're out of time. Thank you so much, man. Really appreciate the insight on something that is just by its nature, stressful, painful. We feel kind of in the dark on on how to approach this because there are so many mixed messages and shedding a little bit of light on something that really can lead to burnout and stress. But I mean, we can turn this around and lead to better communication and even resolution. You're spot on there, Rob. I thank you for making this a priority to talk about it. And I'll finish just by saying to the providers out there, you are not alone. There are people out there to help support you. And if you ever need to contact me about something, I mean, obviously, no, we can't talk about the specifics of active cases, but that's not the point. Reach out to somebody. I'm here if people need it. There's a number of us that have experienced bad events who want to make it a better process for everybody else. And you're not alone. We're all here to help. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching and or sign up for a free coaching discovery session, check us out at roborman.com. That's also where you'll find the complete show notes for this or any other episode, a few free EMR charting templates, a new thing we've got. There you can also sign up for our newsletter and we've got a few other surprises on the site. You might say, well, what are those surprises? Well, they're surprises. Until the next time, my friends, be well and keep on rocking.